0: Namotasab goa to rahato sammasam buddhasam Namotasab goa to rahato sammasam buddhasam Namotasab goa to rahato buddhasam Udham damang sangham namah Obviously there's only very few of us here in the Dhamma Hall this evening. However, I uh, understand that there are a number of other people who listen to these talks elsewhere and uh, I understand also that for some people it feels particularly stressful being uh, cooped up in a small apartment and with only four walls to look at. and So before I uh, address these questions this evening, I wanted to suggest uh, perhaps two or three practical exercises that might prove useful. Because when we're inside all day long and we forget that it's not natural to be having our sight fall so short for such long periods of time it's a very abnormal thing to be doing it can help to intentionally just go and look out the window and even if all you see are a load of other buildings just the exercise of seeing how far which which is the furthest point that you can see to And then allowing your gaze to just be there for a while. And and in so doing, just that much, see if it doesn't help to uh, avoid getting too lost in the head. Being in the room itself is not itself a problem. However, because... Uh, It's easy to get lost inwardly in our inner world that we easily create problems. So just the exercise of going and looking into the distance might be somewhat relieving. Also, maybe even at the same time as looking in the distance mm, or at any time, taking half a dozen slow deep breaths and emphasizing carefully lengthening the out breath it's a very simple exercise but if we do it half a dozen times very slow full in breath and then slow out breath extending it not forcefully at all but gently extending the out breath until we feel the lungs are really empty before we start gently breathing in again and see if that doesn't produce the shoulders dropping belly relaxing and easing stress just a little bit and the third exercise which I heard I wasn't there at the time but I understand Ruth Dennison, uh, who's no longer with us but when she was and uh, I think this might have been at her retreat centre near Joshua Tree National Monument uh, with a gathering of Vipassana teachers. At least that's how I remember hearing it. She led the group in this standing meditation exercise, but it wasn't just standing normally, it was standing on one leg. And if you try it, it's also... uh, what becomes evident, it's very difficult to be following the stories in our head and stay balanced. <laughs> you end up easily fall over unless you really come down into the ground, really lower the centre of gravity uh, into the belly, feel the floor beneath you and standing there. It's not like you have to lift one foot, a foot off the ground just a little bit so there's you know, only one supporting you and seeing if you can maintain balance. And, again, as as an exercise for helping bring us out of our preoccupation with thinking, it can be quite helpful. And that's a useful exercise we can do anywhere, even once the lockdown passes and various situations we may tend to be getting lost in our heads and can just slowly... Gently, nobody else even needs to notice it, just lift one foot off the ground and it helps bring us down and ground us a little bit. Um. Okay, so the first question this evening. I know from past experiences that increased food intake never genuinely makes me feel better. However, the current stress sometimes feels too unpleasant to bear. Might you have an advice for eating more to feel better in stressful times? Although I've not studied it, I imagine there's lots that People who do study these things would have to say about what's behind compulsive eating. and um, But that's not what I want to comment on. What I would like to comment on is, from a practice perspective, what might help. And the first thing that comes to my mind is the compulsive judging mind having a field day. It would be understandable if it did the circumstances that so many people are in right now are thoroughly unfamiliar and yes, they can easily produce stress and how do we cope with that? Well, it's made worse if we fall into the habit of saying that I'm wrong for being this way. I ought not be struggling like this. And if we... Just see that much, just see that we are judging and call it by its name, compulsive judging mind, compulsive judging mind, and then catch it at the next level where we're about to judge the judging mind, then we've got a little bit of a handle on it. And it can make a huge difference to whatever the nature of the struggle we might be caught up in. Because of our education, because of our conditioning, because the way we were programmed. We love knowing stuff, we love feeling sure and mm-hmm. we get very judgmental and critical of ourselves and others when we're not sure and when we don't know and so we have this tendency to default to judging, taking sides. It's normal, it's expectable mm-hmm. and that's how we are programmed. However, with the right application of mindfulness, if we are present enough, and we're listening inwards, and we hear that voice that's saying, I'm wrong for being this way. It is this way. This is how it is right now. I want to eat stuff. So before we can get very far in any other way of approaching that difficulty... Let's take time to check and see if we're not taking a position against ourselves. The middle way, we've just been chanting this evening the Dhamma Chaka Sutta. In the middle way, the Buddha talking about the position in the middle between following the tendency to take sides for and against. That's movement, that's activity. Can we establish ourselves with a perspective that is interested in that movement of taking sides for and against. And so naming it can be helpful. Just, as I said, just call it what it is, judging, judging mind. No judging the judging mind. We can get a feeling for that. It's not just something to believe in. It's not an intellectual exercise, but we can get a feeling for I do not have to judge the judging mind. Yes, the judging mind does this. And I am completely free. I am allowed to not judge it. I am allowed to just watch it. I am. That's the truth. I am allowed to just watch that tendency to take a position for or against myself. It may be a bit of a radical realisation to acknowledge uh, that we're allowed to do that. Maybe there's some conditioned presumption that it's the right thing to do to always be taking sides for or against. But... It's a choice, and we don't have to exercise that choice. We can also exercise the choice of just watching, just knowing. It's like this, the judging mind, judging ourselves. And once we exercise that, well, then we've already fallen back just a little bit more into awareness. We're in a different relationship to the struggle. Yes, there might still be a struggle, but we're not compounding it with compulsive judgment. and So that would be the place I would start. Another approach to looking into what's happening here is to consider this wanting to eat all the time as a form of consumption that's compensating for a sense of lacking. I guess that's probably pretty obvious but it's certainly a contemplation worth picking up and and following. What is it that we're lacking? What is this feeling of lacking? Can we look at the feeling of lacking? Can we spend some time feeling the feeling of lacking without automatically trying to judge it and fill it up? And what is it? Because if we can do that, if we don't immediately react to that feeling of something missing, then we're in a position of maybe able to contemplate it. We can see how much, for instance, how much of our attention is always somewhere other than here and now. These concepts here and now, and they are just concepts, but they're very powerful and important concepts, can, if we ponder them skillfully, bring into relief, highlight, the the degree to which our attention is anywhere other than here and now. And so maybe that's one thing that's missing, is our attention to the reality of the moment we're living in. I would suggest experimenting with just pondering these two words. Contemplate the word here, just saying the word here. And what does that bring up into mind? -hmm. other places that are not here. Here in this room, in this spot in this room, in this chair, here, can we hold the awareness of here, the sense of here, the impression of here, can we hold that for any length of time? Or does our attention go other places? Where I was five minutes ago, or where I was five hours ago, where I was five years ago, where I was 50 years ago. How much of our attention is anywhere other than here? Or the future, like me failing at Mm. trying to not eat too much. Mm. In the future, seeing ourselves failing. We're not here. Or now, the concept of now contemplating, pondering on this now. This word now, this word here, these are are approximations that we use so as to direct attention, bring attention to this experience, this reality that we have access to. We don't have access to the past. That's there. That's gone. We don't have access to the future. That's not here. So we use these approximations. We use these concepts, or we can, if we learn to contemplate skillfully now, to what degree can we hold that awareness of now before the mind wanders off into the future or the past? By exercising in this way, we can just automatically uh, encourage ourselves to be more here, more now. Now, we've heard these words, these concepts many times before, can we apply ourselves to them? And what happens if we bring attention to here and now? Is there a sense of our feeling more nourished already, just nourished by our attention? Maybe we don't feel the same sense of lack that we have to fill up with food or something else, consuming videos or conversations the other things that we consume to compensate for this perception of something missing, something lacking. It is very useful to register the difference between meditation techniques and contemplation. For a lot of this, our inspiration in the Buddhist teaching came with being introduced to a meditation technique that we could give ourselves to and start having some agreeable experiences and compared to the chaos and confusion we were used to, some of the relative peace and calm that a little concentration exercise gives us is very, very welcome. It would, however, be a real mistake if we thought that was all there was to the inner life, just applying a meditation technique Some of you will be familiar, I expect, with that recorded story in the scriptures where the Buddha was talking to his son, the venerable Rahula, and asked him, what what is the point of a a mirror? And Rahula replies, it's a mirror for seeing your face in. And the Buddha went on to explain, and so I say that for seeing the mind, we use wise reflection. It didn't say just making the mind calm and peaceful and empty. We use wise reflection. Being able to contemplate, being able to reflect is a difference, is a different skill. And so contemplating, what is the feeling of lacking that I feel I need to nourish? Just this feeling that's in the belly or my whole nervous system, the feeling of lacking, something missing. We want to contemplate it. Do we have the skill, do we have the tools to do that? Or well, maybe if we do, we'll discover that one of the things that could be lacking is, is here our attention. Our attention has been kidnapped, siphoned off into all sorts of distractions that we maybe didn't even realise that we were addicted to. Another way of approaching this conundrum could be looking at the way we handle negative emotions like the fear of failure or the sense of shame. The negative emotions that assail us at times are not enemies that we have to fight. Just, this is just part of being a human being. We have negative emotions. Despair, disappointment, sadness, mm. sorrow, grief, irritation. This is part of the human condition. One really important way of working so working with our hearts and minds so that we don't get overwhelmed by negative emotions is to replenish our storehouse of goodness. And this is a a, a conscious exercise. This is not just something that they teach us in Sunday school or they might teach us that in Sunday school. However, the wisdom behind the teaching with regards to instilling virtue is profoundly important. If we don't have... A sufficiently well-stocked storehouse of goodness, then we are vulnerable to being overwhelmed by negative emotions. There's always going to be something that triggers negative emotions, whether it's something we see in a newspaper or something somebody says or our own self-perception. Negative emotions are activated. How do we meet them? How do we receive them? Well, one really important aspect of learning how to receive them is learning how to as I said, replenish our storehouse of goodness and that means intentionally, consciously, with understanding, doing good things. I, you know, first thing, I, every day when I start the day these days, I bow to the shrine and make a determination that whatever happens today may it be for the development of goodness and wisdom. Liberating wisdom, of course, that's the goal. However, it needs to be Intensity of goodness before insight and wisdom is going to manifest, and so the like the I was thinking recently about the experiment that I remember doing at high school many years ago, and transforming the compound of of copper sulfate into crystals, making copper sulfate crystals. There's an experiment you can do with a, a beaker and some water and some some copper sulfate powder and you need a certain acidity of the water and a certain purity of the compound and a certain temperature to perform the the process. And however, you also need a intensity or a concentration of the copper sulfate. And if you don't have that concentration of the copper sulphate, then the precipitation won't take place. The crystallisation won't take place. So it is with, with goodness that we need an intensity of goodness, otherwise we easily get overshadowed. I mean, A lot of people spend a lot of money on going to psychotherapists and probably, sadly, end up taking a lot of medication to deal with their negative emotions when perhaps one of the more effective things they could do would be to intentionally cultivate goodness. Mm. So let's not underestimate the intentional cultivation of goodness like integrity, self-respect, really determining to not compromise on integrity or gratitude, to not miss an opportunity to express gratitude or forgiveness to ask or to offer forgiveness, to not miss an opportunity to ask for forgiveness, to, can we say sorry? I can remember a period of my life where, whatever, even though I knew I should say sorry I found it really difficult. What was that? Well, it doesn't really matter what it is, but what matters is that we can deal with it. Have the humility, the modesty to be able to apologize when we've caused harm, or to offer forgiveness when others have hurt us. So all these virtues that we're familiar with, let's not underestimate the power that they have to protect us from being overwhelmed by negative emotions like self-criticism and fear and anxiety. I think of it also as like, it's like light recently started moving some of the plants out of our conservatory here beside the dumoho, because the bamboo and the mock orange bushes outside have grown so big that there's not a lot of light gets in these days. And so the plants are not growing. There's nothing wrong with the plants. It's just not getting enough light. So you move them out to where there's some more light. Well, likewise, it's not necessarily the case there's anything wrong with us. It's just if there's not enough light using that as a metaphor for goodness, if there's not enough goodness, well, then the virtues, the strength, the self-respect, the confidence can't be sustained, it can't grow. So when dealing with something that causes us a sense of personal humiliation or loss of confidence, let's not forget the benefit of intentionally cultivating goodness. Talking about it in this way, it could, I understand, it could easily trigger or activate a sense of, oh, I'm suffering because I'm not good enough. And, well, if there is a psychological deficit of self-confidence there, well, it's obviously important to do something about that. However, from a spiritual perspective, let's not make the mistake of thinking that the personality, the, the self, the ego, is ever going to be anything other than limited. All egos are inherently limited. I was going to say, or I could say inherently inadequate, but they're only inherently inadequate if we think that they should be a source of satisfaction and security. All self-structures, all personality, all egos are processes Changing processes are unstable. They have a very important function. As I was speaking about a week or so ago, the self-structure is a very important function. It's how we navigate our way around the world. However, if we think by clinging to it that it's going to give us a sense of security, then we will be disappointed. So in some sense, the, the ego self is never good enough. It is true. So let's not get carried away with thinking that we have to cultivate all these virtues so that I, personality, me, is going to feel adequate. I am always going to some degree feel inadequate. Hence the refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha awareness, the Buddha knowingness, that selfless awareness that we can again contemplate as a source of security instead of seeking to feel secure by attaching to some activity in awareness, offering up the suggestion to our hearts and mind to allow ourselves to fall back into selfless awareness and see if that makes a difference. Another approach to this question of struggling with eating as a way of coping with stress, a more, perhaps a more long-term approach, I would strongly recommend using this experience as an opportunity to look at how conscious are we in our relationship with wanting this movement this energy, this activity that we call wanting? How conscious are we of it? Do we have sufficient perspective? Can we see it in perspective? Or do we still believe it's totally me and mine? This is me. I want. I don't want. So, unfortunately, for many people, there's a misunderstanding with regards to wanting born out of a misreading of the Buddha's teaching on the four noble truths again as we were chanting tonight the second noble truth the Buddha talks about tanha but tanha is not wanting, tanha is craving I don't know if this misunderstanding is partly caused by the early translators of the Buddha's teaching but wanting doesn't have to be a problem craving is a problem definitely So let's remember what the Buddha was talking about with the the middle way, finding that position, that perspective of just knowing awareness as our refuge, as our fulcrum so as to observe wanting and not wanting and, and stop struggling, stop struggling for and against wanting. We're not going to stop wanting. The Buddha didn't stop wanting. The Buddha wanted his disciples to understand his teachings. He wanted to have a meal. He didn't want his recalcitrant monks to be misbehaving the way they did sometimes. Wanting and not wanting is not a sign of failure. However, if we don't have sufficient perspective on wanting itself, then we don't know how to turn attention around and look directly at it. But we can do that. We can experiment with that. Just make that suggestion. Turn around and look at wanting. Own it. The wrong understanding of wanting can compound a condition that we're already suffering from where we somehow become alienated from this activity. We somehow feel bad about it. And maybe that's the reason we feel lacking because this heart energy is always once removed or many times remove so sometimes we can just the experiment the exercise involves just owning it. Now I know from the perspective of Buddhist scholars that might sound a little bit heretical way of talking however from a practice perspective we have to feel fully responsible for it. We can talk to it. This is mine. This energy. I want to eat cheesecake two great big slices of cheesecake followed by an espresso coffee i do i want i really really want and feel it in the body i really want can we do that now in the beginning that might feel threatening and dangerous you might feel like we're going to be overwhelmed but that feeling of like we're going to be overwhelmed that's because we're so alienated from wanting we don't even know what that movement that energy is holding it at bay, fighting it. So instead of struggling with wanting, let's get interested in the relationship that we have with wanting. Do we have a relationship that's informed by restraint, mindfulness, wise reflection? Or is it just one that's informed by moralising and willful controlling? So being able to turn attention around and talk to wanting, look at wanting, see the risk of turning wanting into craving and to see that we're 100% responsible for that. There is no problem with wanting if we see it for what it is. Remember again that example I've mentioned before of when I was living with Ajahn Tate and he was commenting on the way the Thai people translate uh, the chanting. And there's this one word... Arahang, which means the Buddha is an Arahant, and they translated it in Thai as which means one who is far from defilements. And Arjun Tate was commenting on that and saying, well, actually the Arahant is not far from defilements at all. The Arahant is still really close. The Arahant can see that movement, but the Arahant doesn't attach to it, doesn't cling to it, doesn't turn wanting into craving." So that's our responsibility. and So this frustration or this pain of being humiliated with addictions to distraction really is a gift. It may not feel like it, but it's a precious opportunity to investigate and see what sort of relationship do we have with wanting. This is at the core of so much of our struggles. So let's use this opportunity to learn. As with wanting, we can also learn from that which is very closely connected to wanting, which is fear. The same principle applies. We can spend so much of our life struggling for and against fear, trying to get rid of it and getting lost in it, trying to get rid of it, getting lost in it, How about turning attention around and looking at it directly and really owning it? Not owning it so as to feed the deluded notion of self, but owning it as a functional step towards letting go of the false relationship, the relationship of clinging. The fear that, again, if we're not properly prepared, we risk being overwhelmed by it. And so we do need to be careful if we have a lot of unreceived old fear stored away and then this contemplation that we're engaged in this evening makes sense and so we decide we're going to look into it. Well, we do need to be careful that we are properly prepared for it. And by properly prepared, I mean that the the five spiritual faculties are, are readied a lot of unreceived fear has a lot of potential for causing trauma and may have come from trauma in the past and, and we can re-traumatize ourselves if we open up to it before we're really ready. Uh, fear can turn into terror and have be deeply damaging. So preparing ourselves with investigating the five spiritual faculties which we've spoken about many times before Faith, what does that feel like? Experimenting, studying, listening, listening to what other teachers say about faith, reading what the Buddha said about faith. However, also experimenting for ourselves in the here and now body-mind field of awareness. What does it feel like to trust? What is a trusting disposition? Before you sit down in a chair register actually i'm only sitting in this chair without checking to see if the the legs are all right because i trust what does that feel like all oh, right this is a trusting disposition or when you're about to share something with a friend something that you wouldn't share with anybody else necessarily stopping and registering oh i'm being vulnerable because i trust this person this is what trust feels like and then extrapolating the, Okay, there's trust. I have trust in the Buddha's teaching. I trust that the Buddha was awakened. Wow, that's something. A lot of people don't trust that. And that's a real lack. That's just like having to check to see the chair legs are safe every time you sit down in a chair or, or never allowing yourself to be vulnerable with a friend because you don't have trust. Not being able to trust that there have been human beings who, having looked into the struggle of life, awakened and Saw so beyond the habits of clinging and to complete liberation. Trusting in that, what a wonderful motivating force that can be. And then intensity or very What is our relationship to intensity? Every time the energy builds up, do we get afraid? Do we get anxious? Or are we just too lazy to let any intensity build up or to generate any intensity? Mindfulness or recollectedness do we have sufficient recollectedness to be present enough in the moment like with regards to contemplating this feeling of lack something lacking that we need to fill up do we have enough presence do we have enough mindfulness to be able to contemplate the concept of here and now or is our mind so scattered is our mindfulness so diluted that we can't pay attention to it Appreciating the value of investing in faith and energy and mindfulness and samadhi or concentration or collectedness. Is our attention steady enough? The risk with using the word concentration is that we tend to contract and easily get into a very narrow, exclusive mind state, which may be interesting and may even feel peaceful for a while, but it's not necessarily very functional kind of concentration, the kind of collectedness that's going to generate benefit is broad, open-hearted yes, steady but don't think that everybody has to be developing the jhanas before they can benefit from from exercising discipline of attention and discernment oh. Panya, the fifth of the five spiritual faculties the interest the intelligence to ask the right kind of question at the right time in the right way, so as to lever ourselves off those positions that we have been stuck to. How to how to untangle this knot. That's one of the functions of Panya, of discernment. So appreciating the function the value of these five spiritual faculties, just like before I was talking about there needs to be a, an intensity of concentration of copper sulphate before crystallisation can take place. You know, likewise, you can hear great teachings from great teachers and, and that's amazing. I, I kind of get what the teacher's talking about, but how come I don't fully get it? How come I don't seem to be abiding in that same space as the teacher is abiding well, We might kind of get what the teacher's talking about, but maybe our faculties have not been sufficiently developed, matured enough. There's not enough intensity of presence. The spiritual faculties have not been matured enough. So the precipitation doesn't take place. So if it does take place, if we turn attention around, if we look at fear, whatever it is, maybe some really... Painful fear of failure, fear of rejection, something that's dogged us all our life, but we're there, it's the right time, and we find that we can hold it in the right kind of way and feel it in the body and welcome it. And then we start moving in the direction of really valuable confidence and faith in practice. It's receiving this kind of pain, this kind of struggle, this kind of difficulty that produces strength. It's not just having nice, peaceful moments of samadhi, useful as those might be for those who have the facility to develop them. This wise reflection, when we meet ourselves in our experience of limitation, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure... Can we really, here and now, receive it? Or do we struggle, push it away, reject it, and then distract ourselves with eating or or conversations? Our addiction to distraction is often based on our inability to receive ourselves. So if we are ready and it's the right time and we can receive ourselves in our experience of limited being, maybe it's an actual physical experience of activity in the belly, this fear, this fear of rejection or fear of failure and we say yes. Yes, you can be there as long as you want to be there. Yes, welcome. Really feeling it, not up in our heads with stories, not off in the future thinking about whether we're succeeding or failing, but we have enough Preparedness to be able to be there with it. Fear is like this. And then it moves from maybe our belly up to our of plexus. Yes, you can be there too. Maybe in the chest. Yes, you can be there too. As long as you want to be there. Welcome. And who knows? Maybe we experience the letting go. We can't lay claim to that. If we lay claim to it, oh, I let go of my fear of failure, that would be something extra we're adding to it. Rather, our commitment to dhamma practice, our commitment to this path of investigation of mindfulness, restraint and wise reflection, thats like it's like the medicine. And maybe it starts to work. Okay, so, second question. A question on the theme of metta, a criticism I hear of the Buddhist path. Are we lacking in empathy if we feel contentment amongst all this suffering? Or are we indeed being selfish? When I first read this question, what immediately came to my mind was some of the verses in the Dhammapada where in verse 197-198 where the Buddha said While in the midst of those who hate, to dwell free from hatred is happiness indeed. And 198 While in the midst of those who are troubled, to dwell free from trouble is happiness indeed. So we can start with that. That's what the Buddha has to say about it. That just because everybody else around us is troubled and confused and suffering, that's not a reason why we need to be caught up in it. So even if we're not necessarily a, a, a somebody who already has faith in the Buddha's teaching, I think we can accept that, that this is a, one very wise being who had a profoundly good influence on humanity for the last two and a half thousand years and so it'd be wise of us to look into this. And it does help a lot to ponder on a question like this if we are holding to a model of awareness as a multi dimensional phenomena. Awareness is a multidimensional reality. And conversely, it can be very difficult if we have this idea that awareness or consciousness is some sort of singular thing. If we do have that view, then a mood arises, despair seeing the lack of competent leadership, how despairing that can be and how sad we could feel. It's quite likely that if we have this view of awareness being a singular thing, that we just get taken over by it. However, if we can take on board this, this way of pondering reality, that awareness is multidimensional like with a rainbow you could say a rainbow is a, is a yeah it's a singular thing it's a, a rainbow is a thing however if you look into what a rainbow is it's actually better described as a spectrum and i think this model this this works well when contemplating the reality of awareness we we all know the buddha taught the the four foundations of mindfulness and the four different modes of practice, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, the four absorptions and these states of consciousness, these states of awareness can be coarse, can be refined and if we hold this model in mind when we're thinking about things like, for instance, the, the injustice of society and the how utterly unfortunate it is that human beings can behave the way that we do sometimes and the missed opportunities and the extraordinary foolishness and things could be so much more beautiful and mutually beneficial. That can produce a lot of sadness, can produce tears. However, do we have to be defined by that sadness with the Example of the rainbow: you, you know, like yellow and blue are not the same. You can say, "Well, yes, they are. They're all light. They all are wavelengths of of light, of visible light, and then there's invisible light as well. They, they're all part of the spectrum of light, and they all exist in relationship with each other. And such a model." is really helpful if we are struggling to come to terms with how can I dare to feel contented at the same time as there's all this injustice and suffering going on. Well, what about if we lose contentment and we just get completely caught up in all the suffering? What happens to our intelligence and our perspective on things? What happens to our ability to discern if we're completely caught up in suffering and aversion and ill will and sadness and despair, depression? So thinking of awareness as a multidimensional reality, like also you could think of it like the ocean, that on the surface of the ocean there can be all sorts of tumultuous waves crashing around, and yet just exactly the same time in the depths, it can be very still. So long as we are identified as our thoughts, so long as I believe I am my thoughts, then we are imposing really painful limitations on ourselves. We feel chronically obstructed. However, that's something that we're doing and it doesn't have to be that way. And The exercise I was suggesting a few weeks ago of of intentionally thinking a thought, starting the thought, thinking the thought and listening to that thought as we think it and to hear the silence before we start speaking, the silence between the words and the silence after we've spoken and just beginning to recognise, well, maybe this assumption... That I was holding on to, that I am my thinking, is questionable. And it can be a real relief. Well, it will be a real relief because thinking is very busy. Even peaceful thoughts uh, can be very busy. So, if we can take on board the model of awareness as a multi dimensional reality then perhaps we can see the possibility of accommodating apparent conflicts. Yes, there can be sadness at, at the predicament that we see the world in. What an extraordinary mess we've made of things. Out of huge, wonderful possibilities, we've made an extraordinary mess of this planet, environmentally, materially, socially, spiritually and feel that sadness, be informed by that sadness be motivated by that sadness but not be overwhelmed by that sadness awareness can accommodate a sense of contentment at just the same time as feeling sad and this is not a belief but it is a suggestion that one could consider and then experiment with and I would personally, very strongly very strongly encourage, unapologetically developing inner contentment. Not in a way whereby we become some sort of fundamentalist Buddhist and and attached to contentment and we're afraid of anything that's not perfectly peaceful and beautiful. But also not that we're just completely caught up and lost in all the activity of the world. At the very least we're going to get old and get sick and die, which is probably not going to be very agreeable. How do we meet that? Well, let's experiment with cultivating a deep sense of inner contentment that helps us keep a perspective. If we use the meditation techniques that we have the good fortune to be given to develop this inner sense of contentment and then use that inner sense of contentment so as to relativise the turmoil. No turmoil lasts forever. No storm lasts forever. No pandemic lasts forever. No condition lasts forever. However, we run a very real risk of being caught up in the turmoil if we don't have a frame of reference, if we don't have any access to a sense of contentment, of inner contentment. So we're not talking about cultivating contentment as a rejection of the suffering of the world, but cultivating contentment so as we can have a, keep it in perspective, so as we can remember the relativity of all conditions. Not be swamped by it. Not drown in it. Not drown in the sorrows of the world. Recently I had a very inspiring conversation with a, a long time friend of the monastery, an elderly woman who pointed out to me that um, this was a few days ago she said it's the anniversary of when the country she lived in was invaded during World War II and she was 8 years old at the time and she was talking about how that was the beginning of 5 years of, of fear and she was saying how awful as that was, and how still she can remember it, it doesn't disturb the sense of contentment that she has. She's used these teachings, she's used the meditation, She used the opportunity she's had to develop an inner sense of contentment that means that she can feel the pain of life without being defined by that pain. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.